Thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. Good morning. My name is Noel Brown. I serve on the board of the Leesburg Community Church and am blessed to have the opportunity to be before you today to open God's Word together with you. The last time I did this was on Palm Sunday, and we covered the passage in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11, the triumphal entry and the approach to Jerusalem. We did that on Palm Sunday because that was the passage that covered the, the triumphal entry, where palms or branches were spread on the ground and the donkey, donkey was covered with blankets and Jesus entered triumphantly as the king. Today we're going to cover the next passage in Mark, Mark chapter 11, verses uh, 12 to 25. But before we cut, engage our text, I would like to ask you to join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word together in freedom and to rejoice in the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray, Lord, you will open our minds to your truth today. Bless us with a sense of your presence, even though we're meeting through other medium than being in person. We bless Lord, your goodness to your people worldwide. Bless your church with your presence and power and strength and the clear proclamation of the gospel, the good news in Jesus. And so be with us now by your spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to expand a little bit before we actually engage the text on a related subject I touched on the last time we met on Palm Sunday, when we consider it, as I said, the triumphal entry, as it is called. I'd like to address, briefly, the legitimate questions we all ask, at least to ourselves, if not openly, how can I make sense of the Bible? Is there a unifying framework which can help me to see the relevance into my life of a book, actually a series of books, in a variety of formats and sub-themes written amidst and to a people of, of, and cultures and personal histories which differ so dramatically from mine. How can I make sense of it? To put it another way, how can I see the Bible proclaimed by Christians as the Word of God with its many contours and settings as being coherent, as having a unifying theme that I can understand and see where I fit in? Well, we're really talking about a subject of Bible interpretation, and there are some basic principles involved in that from the larger sense. One is, let the clearer explain the more obscure. If you're on a passage that is hard to understand, that seems obscure, let clearer passages of the scriptures that are relevant to that help in understanding it. Secondly, it's similar to the first, Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. Better than commentaries, better than man's writing elsewhere, 
God's word interprets itself in many ways, and we should remember that and always turn to it first. And then finally, at the very practical level, at the passage level, and we'll touch on using this today, ask, how does my understanding of this passage fit with the rest of Scripture? Does it fit at all? Or is there a glaring contradiction? Why these questions? Because there is a coherent view of the Bible, which is that it is God's revelation of his purpose for what we call creation. It is the true story of the whole world, so to speak. I'm borrowing a title of a book I've read recently in that phrase. What do I mean by story? I don't mean a fable, you know, a made-up story, something to entertain. Nor do I mean a lie, you know, like sometimes you got accused when you were a kid of telling stories, meaning lies, white lies, if there are such things. I don't mean that either. It is the true story, a trustworthy presentation of reality. In our case, the history that's being presented, the story is one of four acts, so to speak, or epics, periods of time. Creation, the fall, redemption, and consummation. Creation, the fall, redemption, and consummation. Those words encapsulate what God's work is in the world and has been and continues to be. Those comprise the theme of all that is that we know. And for humanity, Jesus Christ is at the center of all of those. As prophet, priest, and king. For his people and for all. Our text today touches on each of these roles. Prophet, priest, and king. Now, on to that text with another little brief transition. The verse 11 of chapter 11 says, after he had gone uh, through the triumphal entry, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Pretty simple statement. He had just finished the ride into Jerusalem with the crowd shouting, Hosanna, the King, Messiah, the Savior. Then looking around, probably in vocabulary of some of us who've had experience in that looking around part, he made a reconnaissance. He looked around at everything. What do you think his reaction was? Did he have a reaction? Inside, when he saw what he saw, was Jesus seething? And when he left, did he spend the night seething in anger over what he saw? From the later verses that we're going to read, one might conclude that. Or did he have a different reaction? There is a passage in the Gospel according to Luke set between the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple, which helps us sense his reaction and understand the next event. 
Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44. I'm going to read them for you. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. I don't think Jesus was seething. I think he was weeping and praying over Jerusalem and its future. On the following day, the text says, beginning in verse 12, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs, for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. There had been a huge array of commentary on this particular event. Some of it makes you scratch your head. Some have said this doesn't even belong in the Bible. It's beneath Jesus, this petulance, this fit of peak to destroy a tree. Some people have said and thought that. But you know, when you begin to read and learn a little bit more about the Middle East and this season of the year, and the fig trees in particular, another helpful fact comes to mind. Just after the initial leafing of the tree, when leaves came, there is commonly appears a small almond-sized pre-season fig. They have a name for it. It's semi-sweet. It's not as sweet as a full fig, but it's certainly edible. And people then and do eat it. And so Jesus probably was looking for those, the beginning fruit, the early fruit. All of Jesus' actions are intentional. They're not pits of feek of peak, if you will, or anger, except what we're about to see shortly in the temple. And even there, it is a teaching moment. He does things that sometimes surprise us, though. Think back in the gospel that we have been studying together for a number of months. In chapter 1, the time is fulfilled, he said, and the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled, and Jesus is now acting in that time. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He speaks to Peter and John and so on on the side of the shore. Come with me. And they drop the nets and come. And he taught as one who had authority. It wasn't just rambling. Jesus spoke with authority. Chapter 1 and verse 34. Then he said later on to them, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there, for that is why I came out. Purposefulness, intentional, was the root of Jesus' actions. But when the grain is ripe, 
at once he picks in the sickle, talking about the harvest, because the harvest has come. Jesus, in another location, talked about the fields being white for harvest. His action here is not a fit of temper or petulance, quote, not worthy of him, and certainly is worthy of him, as one commentator said. He is fulfilling his role here as prophet with, action, with an action parable, not just a word parable, an action parable. We'll come back to the parable, but let's continue on to, into the temple with Jesus and his disciples. The next passage is Jesus cleansing the timber, temple, it's, it's entitled in the English Standard Version. And they came to Jerusalem, beginning in verse 15. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought the, in, in the temple. And he overturned the temples of the money changers and the seats of him who sold pigeons, those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Jesus spent the entire day in the temple teaching. Some of it was teaching by action. And onlookers to that action would see anger. Jesus was, was probably demonstrating disappointment at least, and anger at how the, the, the authorities, the Pharisees and scribes, the leaders of Israel, had let this temple deteriorate from a house of prayer to a den of robbers. And so you can picture him going along the rows of tables of the money chasers, saying, my house shall be a house of prayer, and throwing over the table. And another table, you've made it a den of robbers, and over they would go. Table after table, he would be demonstrating that the use of the temple, absent it being a house of prayer, was not what God wanted and would be condemned. And so the chief, chief priests, priests heard it, and they wanted to destroy him. It is hard for us in our culture, 2,000 years later almost, to appreciate the central role of the temple in the life of Israel, God's presence with them from the exit of, from Egypt through the time in the wilderness, God was present in a tabernacle with a pillar of fire and a cloud, but his presence was symbolized by the tabernacle and its contents, and it moved with them. Ultimately, there was a temple built and then partly destroyed and then rebuilt and partly destroyed and rebuilt as the place where God was. There was the outside court, the largest court, the court of the Gentiles, and then the inner court, and then the holy place, and finally the holy of holies. The Gentiles, believing Gentiles, could come into the outside court and worship and pray in the, in the inner court, Jews could come and pray and worship. In the holy place, the priests could go and do their work of sacrifices. And in the holy of holies, 
Only the high priest, once a year, could go to sacrifice. There were very specific roles of all, but the place was open even to Gentiles in the outer court, the court of Gentiles. Jesus says in his, in, in, in his lament here, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Is it not written, written for all nations? It is written. In Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 to 8, it says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Jesus probably knew by heart the entire scriptures. And he quoted from Isaiah. This is a house of prayer for all nations. And you have defiled it. Not much prayer going on in that house. A lot of business. One of the issues that he that it speaks about is he kept people from passing through it. He would not let people go through it. Because what had happened, they were using an entry gate and an exit gate from the house of Gentiles as a business path, almost like a, a, a mall road. And back and forth, strictly for their purpose of Shortcutting and, cut, and having business and conducting. Not for worshiping Gentiles to come in and worship God. And then there was, of course, the, the chaos of all these people coming. Of course, during the exile, and when the exiles were over, many of the Jews did not come back. But they would come, many, for, uh, the, uh, for the Passover. And so they would bring their currencies from where they lived. And that would have to be exchanged to the currency of, of, of Israel. And so money changes were net needed, but these were making profits. They had made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests heard that Jesus had said, and they were out to destroy him, because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. He astonished them all day, both by action and by words. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Let's move ahead to the next day. A lesson from the withered fig tree in chapter 11, verses 20 to 25. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now remember, the day before, Jesus went over to the tree his disciples were with him, probably others too, maybe a crowd. And the disciples clustered around him, and he spoke that curse to the tree. Could well be that people in the back, someone said, what's he doing? And somebody said, I just saw his lips move. Well, what was he doing? He said, he was talking to the tree. He's talking to the tree? That's what it looked like me to me. They might have thought Jesus was daft. But the disciples heard what he had said. 
that he had cursed that tree. Now, if this was an act of petulance, if this was an act of surprise that there was no fruit, you think this would be in the scriptures? This was a purposeful act by the Lord God, Jesus Christ, to make sure we understood his prophecy and a key element in the plan of God in this redemptive plan. The withered tree. What actually happened? How did the tree wither? I had the the, uh, sad task of cutting down a couple of trees on the edge of my property recently. One was a lovely dogwood, or had been, that had been caught with the disease affecting dogwoods in this area over the years, but had held on. But then vines started to creep up it, uh, up and so on, and finally choked it out, and it died. And as I cut it down, and as it fell, branches just cracked, snapped, because there was no life left in that tree. There was no water left in the tree. Down at the bottom, it was still, there was still moisture. You could tell as I cut through the stump that it was still had some content of moisture. But the upper part was, de- was, go- was devoid of water. If you've lived in this area for a while, you've seen the demise of the ash trees in northern Virginia, maybe all over the northeast. And when you look up, up at one that has been affected by the borer and so on that have killed the tree, it's obviously dead. No leaves, no buds. And when it comes down, it's dry. But, it, with this, but all those instances to have take, over, take time. Not overnight. Not in a matter of hours. What happened here? When Jesus cursed the tree, he set in motion the process of quickly extracting all the water from that tree. All the water. It says in the text, withered to its roots. None of the key vehicle in the process of life was left. No water. No transmission of nutrients. No refreshment after that. It was dead. Dead. And he's acting as the prophet. What is he prophesying? What is he foretelling? My studies lead me to conclude that he is foretelling the destruction of the city, of the the temple over which he wept. The destruction of the temple in 70 AD at the near end of the war against Rome. It's utter destruction. Virtually stone taken off every stone. He's foretelling at the place that for centuries, for God's people, had been the place where God located himself in a meaningful way to be with them. And it was gone. It would be dead. The tree was dead. The temple was going to be gone. It was the end of the first covenant order. Done. Finished. No more sacrifices. No relationship with God bridled by hundreds of laws well beyond those given to Moses. But if that's gone, what replaces it? What is it that replaces all of that for God's people? 
Well, it's living water. Living water. Jeremiah 17, 12 to 13, where the passage was read before you before. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, for all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have saken the Lord, the fountain of living water. God is the fountain of living water. Jesus is the fountain of living water. Remember in the fourth chapter, John, when he encounters the Samaritan woman, not a Jewish woman, a Samaritan woman, at the well, and he asks her to get him a drink, and she questions why a Jew would ask her, a Samaritan, why to do that. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The work of the temple was done. Jesus was moving into his work as priest. You know what priests do. They offered sacrifices. And he would do that. But the new source would be Christ. Living water. There are many places in the scriptures that use water as an instance of life, and even liken the work of the Spirit to the river of water, refreshing us and lifting us up that we might bear good fruit. I'll leave you to look those up yourself. But Jesus goes on a little further because Peter says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus gives no explanation for that or excuse, he begins immediately by responding, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, where whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you, may forgive you your trespasses. His immediate response is the response of the king, the promise from the king. Pray, have faith in God, and you will remove mountains. You know, it's, uh, it's tempting for us to uh, belittle that phrase and say, ah, he was just speaking in, um, in metaphor. And to a certain degree, that would be right. Jesus earlier had said in this same book how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. What was the, what was the, the metaphor? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter heaven. Jesus uses many metaphors in his teaching. And so, yeah, metaphor, but a metaphor with powerful meaning. We did not, should not minimize what Jesus is saying here. He says, have faith in God, not faith in something else. Not faith in America, or faith in money, 
or faith in your skills or faith in whatever other people hold faith in. Faith in God. Faith in God's preserving and keeping and his ability and willingness to answer prayer. And with that faith, yes, we are taught by the Savior to pray audaciously. Pray as if we wanted a mountain to be moved. We'll come back to that. But he speaks here of faith in Father, Son, and Spirit. That is the blessing of the river of living water given to us. Secondly, the work of the Holy Spirit on all believers, the new person, the new life, is fruit. That tree had no more fruit. We are commanded to bear fruit. And there's many different kinds of fruit. I'll read one in a second. And finally, forgiveness, freely given, and a response for being freely received. Faith, fruit, and forgiveness. So, pray as if you trusted God and believed. No, no. Believe and trust and pray to move mountains. How did that actually work out for them, for the disciples? I'm going to read to you a passage from the third chapter of Acts, the first ten verses, actually. Give you a moment to turn, turn to it if you have your Bible with you. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. That gate probably wasn't very beautiful for him up to this time. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive the alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John and said, look at us. Now, Peter may have glanced at John, too, and said, you praying? Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, now a beautiful gate for him, too, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. More astonishment. Jesus had taught his disciples to believe God and if you want a mountain moved, ask for it, and it will be given you. Taking a lame man who is lame from maybe from birth or early years, and with those words, he is healed and leaps up. That would be moving a mountain. 
that would be moving a mountain. And they trusted God. <clears throat> but there is a warning in that passage too. When we get down to the portion about forgiveness. There's a warming, a warning to the church. Yes, believe God, trust, and ask. But we need a qualification there, and there is one from Jesus. That of forgiveness. That of ensuring that we have nothing against anyone in our hearts. Forgiveness. Jesus said, we have to forgive. Not as a condition of being forgiven. Being forgiven came on the cross. Our sin was covered. There were no more needs for sacrifices. No more conditions. No more actions to do to earn God's favor. We were saved by the work of our high priest on the cross. All our sin was dealt with, covered, blotted out. But in order for us to bear the fruit of moving mountains, we cannot harbor in our heart those things that keep us from forgiving genuinely, truly. Harboring evil thoughts, resentments, anger, jealousies, distrust, those things will destroy the fruit of a church. And so, the first prayer is to be, Lord, help me forgive. And the second action is to run. Do not walk to the one whom you need to forgive or to the one from whom you need to seek forgiveness. If we are led by the Spirit, Paul says to the Galatians, you are not under the law. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. What a joyous place to be in amidst people who emphasize and demonstrate with their lives and their hearts those fruits. What a wonderful company to be in and to labor among as we bring the word of the only hope of mankind to mankind worldwide, the church of Jesus. So how do we apply all this to our lives? I've done some of that during the last few minutes, but let me just underscore a few things. First, to those of you who may not yet have entered the household of faith in Christ, you're still watching from the outside, looking in, trying to ignore, trying to live a life without God entirely, yet knowing he is there. Those, the unbelieving, why will you hang on to a dead tree? Why? Self-justification and self-righteousness will not get you into God's presence. 
All your works are nothing to God. Only the work of Christ is the qualifying entry to his presence. The dead tree to which you're clinging and taking shelter will only break under your weight and fail you in your greatest need. Come to Christ. I beseech you, come to Christ. Jesus, save me, or I die. The fountain of living water. What a change will happen to you. New life from living water. New energy, new joy, a cross to bear as well. And yet a savior to uphold you and a helper from him to keep you. Come. Come to Jesus or you die. Please, come. If you want to do that now, there's something you can click on our church's website and someone will call you. LeesburgCommunityChurch.org Someone will respond and help. But to the God's people, to the community of the people of God, there are a host of other applications. I, I, I've covered the first. What or whom do you need to forgive? Are you allowing your heart to be rooted in anger, resentment, and jealousy, even hatred? The fruits of that kind of root are thorns. Thorns. Things that stick and hurt. They don't heal and lift up. There's a warning for us. A warning here for the church. How many times do you have to forgive? Peter asked that, didn't he? Seven times, Lord? What did Jesus say? Seventy times seven. Anybody reached seventy times seven yet? That's the expectation. That level of forgiveness. Total and complete. The risk for the church is that we drift away from the core of the gospel. Revelations 2, in that section of the final book of the Bible that talks about seven churches. To the church at Ephesus, the Spirit commanded John to write, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstead, lampstead from its place unless you repent. There's a warning for us in that, besides the beautiful blessing of living water. Secondly, Jesus said, when you stand praying. Do you stand when you pray? It's not mandatory. Kneeling is done in the Bible, standing, head, heads up, heads down, arms raised. But Jesus said in this place, when you stand praying, if he was intentional, there may be some meaning there. And to me, it's this. When we pray, we are coming to the one who can answer prayer, who can do all things, the king, with all power, our King Jesus. It would seem to me appropriate Sometimes, on occasion, maybe more than infrequently, to stand 
when I pray, when I come before the king. So he said, when you stand praying, do those things. You're coming to the king. Are you praying audaciously? What mountains do you want to be moved? Audaciously, with boldness. What mountains do you want removed? Is there an unbelieving friend or relative that you want brought from death to life? That's a mountain. It was a mountain for me. I laid a mountain of sin at the foot of the cross when God drew me to him. It's a mountain. And yet all of us have people we love and are praying for. Don't give up. Pray aggressively. Pray in confidence. Pray believing that God will draw them to him. Claim his promise. Our nation's response to the current virus crisis. That's a mountain. Here we are, the richest nation in the world. And we have the most deaths of any nation in the world. The most cases of any nation in the world. We are struggling to deal with it. Fits and starts and try this and try that. Now, this kind of crisis would overwhelm any government. But it also seems to, you know, the government's working on recovering. But it seems overwhelming us too. We go farther and farther apart. We get a command to, to stand down, stay at home, and maybe not open up. And people bring guns to force stores to open or force people who want them to be closed to stand back. Citizens, carrying guns against citizens over that. There's plenty of stuff that would indicate to the rest of the world that America is not leading in this. So there's a mountain to be moved. And you have to ask yourself the question, why is this happening to America? Why this number and persistence of illness and deaths? Could it be a call by God through the church to repent? To repent of sin and come to the only Savior, the only healer, the doctor of the worst sickness, the sickness of sin. Could that be the reason we're struggling with this? I'm not saying for sure it is. I don't know God's heart. But it may well be his purpose in this. What about our church's outreach here and around the world? There's a mountain. We have ministries from Eastern Europe to Central America and Asia. South Asia and India. We labor with others in places where the gospel is moving aggressively and powerfully and in places where Christians are persecuted severely, even for mentioning their faith. There's a mountain there that we need to be praying that God will level and give the gospel great power and force across the world. In our own church here, we're searching for a new senior pastor. That's something to be praying for. We want a mountain to be moved upon which a pastor can stand and lead us forward in the years ahead with a strong ministry and witness and testimony and deep fellowship bounded by the word of God. We want to all fall in love with each other 
all those hundreds of brothers and sisters Jesus promised when we take up our cross together and houses and things, all those things, we want that mountain to be built that we can announce from a city on a hill the gospel of Christ. We want deeper bonds of love us among us. And finally, are you in the word every day? You know, we have this theme going through Scripture from creation and the fall, redemption, and then the consummation. Jesus promises to come back. We need to be armed with that message and familiar with it and able to always speak, as the apostle wrote, the reason for the hope that is in us. If you're not in the word every day, in some way, you are falling behind. I say that categorically based on my own experience. In the Word every day. I'm not talking about to read a whole book, but you need to refresh your memory and your understanding and the promises of God, and you need to confess when it's appropriate and be brought to that by His Word so that you can kneel or sit or stand in prayer and confess and then claim His promises. And so, my friends, yes, there's a coherent theme in the Scriptures. There's a coherent theme in Mark. There are things that surprise us, but all are leading toward the completed work of the prophet who taught by word and deed of the priest who gave the sacrifice and the king who rules and will come back. He has promised. We anticipate that joyfully, expectantly, knowing, though, that today we have work to do in the kingdom. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. Lord, may my fumbling words, imprecise understandings, and other flaws in this time be overcome by the power of your Spirit. He teaches us to pray, Lord. And Spirit, you teach us to understand your word. So give us grace, O Lord. Help us to be praying that mountains be moved. Fill us with a river of living water. Make our fruit abundant. So abundant, people awe at the joy they see and the work they see accomplished in this assembly and the others that we fellowship with in our area and around the world. And so bless us, Lord. We thank you for this day and this worship before you, the music performed so wonderfully. Thank you, God, that you've drawn us to yourself from sin to life in Christ. For we come to you in that name that is above every name, Lord, that you taught us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.